positive feedback loop. Hello, welcome to Positive Feedback Loop. This is the show where we talk about things that we find interesting and learn about them from each other and learn a little bit about each other. So to start us off, I'm Luis. This is Ray. And this is Stephanie. And we have special guests here today. I'm Andrew. Yes, we have Andrew here on the on the recorder recording studio with us. Uh, this very advanced facility uh, called a team room at the Questrom School of Business at Boston University. So today we have, we wanted to talk a little bit about piracy. That's actually a topic that, you know, is very uh, dear to all our hearts as people who have grown up in the modern world. Dear to our hearts? Yes. Uh, (laughs) Yes, it's exactly dear to our hearts. Um, And as much as people enjoy the idea of pirates as the traditional swashbuckling sort, um, we all know that that's not really what we deal with anymore, with the exception of maybe Somalia. So let's talk a little bit about that. Um... Piracy has made a lot of inroads uh, in a lot of industries. It's something that panics a lot of companies. And it's also something that even has an impact in politics. I know that there are part there are pirate parties in some countries that actually make piracy a key part of their platform. Think about the history of piracy. So you're talking about pirates uh, you know, on a, on a ship. But you, you can also think about when during the 60s and 70s there were still pirates, right? There was still technology that could have been uh, counterfeited. So this idea of I'm thinking like um, eight tracks and uh, tapes and different kinds of recording devices. So it's not just the piracy of downloading movies or music, which is what we think Mm -hmm. of nowadays on torrents or IRC channels or other types of, um, you know, dark internet webs. (laughs) <laughs> that actually reminds me a little bit of those uh, warnings before videos that were like, if you wouldn't steal a car, you shouldn't pirate. Yeah. <laughs> I was I'm going to say, I think it's interesting the point that Ray's brought up about how piracy has changed. Because for most of us, piracy is a digital thing. We can think back to Napster back in the day, uh, or Usenet, and then Torrents today, primarily. But uh, just the other day, I was watching a documentary, and I remember the old MPAA president talking about... If we have video recorders... What's the MPA just for audience? Uh, the Motion Picture Association of America. Right. So those are people who sue you if you download a movie. Okay. Uh, the president of that in the 70s, I believe, or maybe early 80s, talked about, if we have a VHS recorder in every home, we will no longer be able to report produce entertainment because if people can record it onto a VHS tape, the market will be gone, which is now the current argument being said about Torrance, that we can't make television anymore if you're downloading it, but... For VHS tapes, that's fine now, but it seems like digital has yet to sort of evolve. I have a question for you, Andrew. Did you pirate this documentary? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I believe it was a YouTube, uh, a YouTube documentary. Ah, fantastic. Yes. Um, But actually, that's a fantastic point. That's uh, one of the things that has happened a lot is the spread of DRM, digital rights management software, to try to stop, stem the flow of piracy. Um... And some of the arguments made by companies is if, you know, this is potential lost revenue, people not watching our things or playing our games, that means that, you know, we're not making that money that we could have been making from sales to them. But then people who engage in piracy or people who defend it would generally come back with, well, these are people who otherwise would not have consumed this content. Right. They see it as, a, as marketing. So a lot yeah. of companies even in their minds maybe conceptually write off this lost revenue due to piracy 
saying, well, it's, it's a way, we would have given away free CDs out on the streets in, you know, when CDs were popular. We would have given out cassettes of, you know, singles. To get that publicity, you would give away free content. Is piracy uh, an argument for that, or is it really dangerous? Is it stealing revenue from those who are content creators? Well, one thing I want to mention is I don't think that a lot of times, well, I would say most piracy isn't, their, their objective is to get content without paying for it. True. But I feel like many cases, it's actually just an easier way to get your content. Things that have occurred or that have popped up in the last decade, like Netflix and streaming and high quality uh, video that is easy to navigate, that has helped a lot in, in kind of suppressing um, piracy and the affordable rates that they offer helps as well. Because it increases the barrier to trying to get that content otherwise, right? Like no. it, it, it makes it harder for somebody to steal content than to just pay the seven yeah. or ten bucks to Netflix. Right. Right? Yeah. Once that yeah, once that becomes realistic, I think I can speak to a recent example. Uh, when I was living in China uh, over the last several years, the copyright laws there are slightly different from here. So when I wanted to watch something like a House of Cards, my internet at home was not fast enough to stream Netflix. However, it was fast enough to download an episode over the course of a couple days, which I could then enjoy. Now that I'm here back in the U.S., I have a Netflix subscription. I pay them every month, and I probably would not had I not downloaded illegally here, legally there, those episodes of House of Cards. That's true. I remember back, like I guess it was over a decade ago, um, when VCDs, it wasn't DVD quality, it was like video CDs basically, and that's what he thinks. And when I was in Turkey and visiting my home country, they would just sell VCDs or super VCDs, and these are like, uh, a these are usually AVI files or uh, MPG files, and uh, you know, less than 700 megabytes, so it would fit on a CD. And I would take, you know, sometimes one movie would come on two discs, and I would take maybe a day or two to download the movie. And then I like, look forward and anticipate watching it. But now, only because streaming was not an option. So that, you're right, streaming has, um, you know, enabled us to be able to just pay for movies cheaply. And so actually, I think that's, that kind of brings me to the cultural aspect of piracy. There's a couple of things that, you know, I find interesting about this. And one is, I also had a similar experience in that in Cuba, due to, you know, the embargo and the fact that we are cut off from a lot of, uh, we also have, you know, a very specific form of government that has specific values it tries to impose. Piracy is one of the best ways you have to actually get access to outside content. Um, so a lot of American movies we only had access to because of piracy. So it's one of the best ways to spread American values and culture to the world where these may not be necessarily available. And I know, for example, that in North Korea, for example, they have a lot of Southern South Korean dramas make it there. And that's one of the ways why people can know a little bit about South Korea, even if they also see it with suspicion. Um, and the other thing is piracy is another way for people to avoid FOMO, the fear of missing out, <laughs> right? There's the, the fact that we live in a society with so much entertainment out there that there's always something else that people can talk about around the water cooler and no one wants to miss out on it. And if you don't have the resources to really engage in seeing these shows or playing these games, piracy may be the best way for you to remain connected to a lot of people. That's not to say I'm condoning it. I'm just saying that this is one of the reasons why people might do it. This brings up a question. Do you think that price discrimination among 
audio and video content would be a possibility. So let's say you're a millionaire. You'd get charged $100 at the movie theater or $100 to download. You, you know, your Netflix would be just more money. Would that... Would that work? Well, we do that already to a degree. I mean, if we're talking about if we're talking about across the world, there is price discrimination by regions. I'm, I'm talking about by income in the same location. And then that's discrimination by service. So I think that you might get be access to different services. For example, you might be able to have to pay if you're a millionaire. I'm maybe you'll the pay same service, different prices. I I think that what the way that companies tend to sell this because people find it inherently unfair that they'll pay for the same product in two different ways, is I that, agree. for example, companies will market it as, we will give you HD for more for uh, an extra fee per month. That's one way you can discriminate on price. Um, we will give you, op- optionally, you can have, for example, what Hulu's doing, which I find slightly asinine, but you're welcome to argue that point, where you can have limited advertisement as a way of selling the service. That's something they do right now, where you can have either completely commercial-free, or you can have it with some commercials. I don't know why I would get into that service. That's but. that's what I was going to actually talk about, specifically the Hulu example of you now can no longer watch content there for free. You must pay money. It's how much money you pay determines how many ads you have to see. Hmm. So it's sort of a ridiculous concept for someone. I switched to Hulu from pirating some TV shows because it was just more convenient to watch a minute of ads when I was in college than to download something. Uh, but then once it starts costing money, it really defeats the purpose, especially with ads included. But I think you'd have to be a millionaire to pay Hulu enough to not have any ads that packages. So there is, no, I can. there is no Hulu option where there's zero ads? Not anymore. Well, with, there is an option where there's zero ads, oh, oh. which is the paid, the extra paid option, which I think is like uh, more than $10 a month. Yes. And I think the with ads option is like 6 or $7 a month. So it's not... Unreasonable. It's not unreasonable, but if it, you're a, it feels asinine. It's, if you're a college student, I think it sounds unreasonable. Right. Yeah. Because you think, first of all, college students avoid a, paying a lot of different fees by just looking at ads. They're totally fine with it. And I think of all the apps where there are apps that show ads, and then and that has nothing to do with consuming media. It's even apps to do things, play games. They choose the ad version or not. But then when you deal with a an easy piracy versus watching an ad, those two in it, kind of compared to each other become the the ethical line for some that they're willing to cross if it's if it's un, if it's unethical in their minds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that um, the issue of college students is, is an interesting one because I think there's an, a point in a lot of people's lives where they go from I'm a poor college student, so I want to pirate some videos and and some games, and then they move into I'm now a productive member of society. I should support these enterprises because a lot. Some people justify it to themselves, saying these are evil mega corporations. They don't deserve my money. But ultimately, the people we're hurting. Yes, we hurt the evil mega corporation, but we also hurt the employees of the evil mega corporations who may just have been starving college students until just a few days ago. You know, like it, it hurts everyone. So I wonder if we can unpack that because when we're thinking about piracy, there's almost this dissociative nature of thinking there's this big corporation and I'm just taking this small amount of video or music and somehow we dissociate ourselves from whoever we're hurting. But then I think of, you know, there are a lot of piracy acts in play now in, in legislature where they're worried about the smaller creators. They're worried about artists and musicians that really are at the level of this is my bread for the week. 
and how does piracy hurt them? And so how do we protect the little guy, right? So you actually bring me on to a point that I find interesting, and we kind of discussed this uh, off the show a little bit uh, recently, which is freebooting, which is not exactly the same as piracy. Freebooting is a term coined relatively recently, a few years ago, by Brady Heron of the Hello Internet podcast, which you should all listen to, um, uh, although not more than this podcast. Uh, and basically the, the idea is it's content that's produced, for example, on YouTube, where creators do monetize the content and make money and get exposure off of it. Maybe not necessarily monetize, but even you get exposure of the content. And then people will take that content, strip out the any information that either identifies it to the original source or links it back to the original source, and then put it on Facebook. Thus basically effectively stealing views from the original creator and then only capitalizing on them for yourself. And sometimes these stole, this stolen content will get the people on Facebook way more views than they ever made on YouTube. But people don't bring them to Facebook because they can't monetize there as effectively. So this is a form of piracy in a way, is it not? It's a lot of... <laughs> yes, right. Our expert on the field. <laughs> Freebooting well, free is a new concept to me. Uh, I heard Luis talk about it recently. Other than that, I've not. Uh, I'm familiar with it in that I have gone on Tumblr before in my life, which is a place that is purely freebooted content, it seems. Uh, it is definitely a form of piracy. I think that it is the key difference is the goal. In freebooting, it seems like the goal is actually taking the value that the content would give. So it's getting the attention, getting the views. It would be like me taking House of Cards to my, to chinanetflix.com and then saying, look at this amazing show that I made with Kevin Spacey. It's, isn't it great? That's not me enjoying it. That's me. I would believe it. That's me yeah. <laughs> freebooting the yeah. content and then getting a lot beyond just enjoyment. When something is personally taken, viewed, or whatever, played if it's a game, that that is different because you're enjoying it the way it's meant to be enjoyed, albeit without the renew, remuneration, 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 yeah. remuneration yeah. <laughs> that, that is supposed to be attached to it. So you would say that freebooting is actually worse than traditional piracy? Yes. I would agree. I would say that it is far more vile in a sense. Well, with, with exceptions, obviously. Some people can take pirated content and sell it, which is a similar thing that you're doing right, right? you could take I mean, yeah you could sell bootlegged movies on the street and that's equally reprehensible in that sense because you didn't pay for it you don't own it and now you're making money off of it you're basically claiming it as your own so the mindset here um of freebooting actually happens a lot in social media conceptually you have memes or even content memes are more kind of public domain in, yeah in, in a sense but you have other content that people will actually steal from some other person's Instagram account and they'll they'll post it and maybe even get more views. So that's the stealing of content. What's interesting to me is that Pinterest in its user interface and, and its features actually combats kind of that freebooting conceptualization by allowing people to repin another's content, but it still draws you back to the original pinner as the source of that content. So you can actually share something on your Pinterest profile by still giving credit, whereas on Instagram you can't do that. So I actually want to note something about that because the way that I don't I don't use Pinterest for the record, not because I need to make sure that people know that, but more because I don't I'm not familiar with its mechanics. But I would say that what a lot of people do when they're freeboot is that they'll actually just, for example, take a screenshot of some artist's work 
and then strip it of any name and then post it as their own. So it's not that they're just resharing things. Mm -hmm. It's that you're literally stealing it and then hiding the source. Right. Which I, I don't know if Pinterest has a method to combat that, but that's a lot more devious, yeah. I would say. I guess what I'm sense. talking about is that it's it's easy to get slide into this freebooting mentality. It's almost like the slippery slope of ethics. By Especially in a sharing account. Yeah. Because it's yeah, because it's so easy. And so Pinterest at least reduces the gray area between the two. So I was thinking about solutions to this problem. Potentially. Yeah, let's hear so, it. Uh, I don't know if you guys know about steganography, which is the science of hiding information within the actual uh, image or video or audio in the file. So it's not, so the original um, location or the original source of where it came from would be encoded within the file itself, unseen by other people. Uh, but the, the sourcer can, the person who created the content, can follow where it's being uh, posted and things like that. So I think that would be an interesting way to deal with this issue. So anytime someone copies your image from your website or from your upload, you'll be like notified where it is. And I think one way to do it is to use a blockchain system. You know, there's no way to hack this, so, uh, I would say. So uh, for our listeners who may not be aware, Ray, could you explain blockchain? Right, so yeah, Luis, uh, blockchain is kind of like, a, it's a distributed database where it basically records every time there's a transaction or every time there's a copy for, for this example, there'll be a timestamp of when that occurs, where it occurs. So in a way, you have this distributed ledger where any action that's happening about this file is recorded on multiple multiple servers or databases and they work with each other. So you, there's so if something is changed on one um, computer, it'll also be, that information will be kind of copied on to all the other servers so there's no way to and it's distributed so you don't know where the servers are it's completely random it's um it's just really hard to hack into so this actually brings me to another topic that's really related to piracy and it's digital rights management um and we kind of touched on this a little bit earlier but companies do try to take steps to combat piracy obviously and some of these steps for example what Ray proposes would be a form of digital rights management that would be yep. you're basically putting your stamp on things and then you can then seek out people who are infringing on your property and go after them there's a actually original way that we did this in in social media which is to find out if somebody's using your image you'd actually google image search your image right yep. because then your image will come up on all the websites of the people who have taken your image and put it on their website. So it's almost this old-fashioned way of digital rights management. The only problem is every image you've ever created, you have to go one by one and search for it. And, and that's the thing. It's onerous for small-time players. For example, the biggest victims of freebooting are not mega corporations. It's small artists right. who survive off of you know getting the exposure and getting the, the, the clicks. And similarly... Um, you know, digital rights management has generally been the purview of big corporations trying to protect their, their property. And sometimes it's actually even helped them in a sense that it's provided, uh, you know, viral, it's had a viral quality to it and that it's helped them promote themselves. For example, I know that there are some games that have quirky ways of getting around pirates and they've done this since like the 90s where, for example, if you pirated the game, the game would detect it and there would be an unbeatable boss just to stop Ooh, you from going creative. further in the game. Yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah, and that's 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 a way that kind of 
can get underneath the skin of pirates. That's why I was never able to beat that. What was that game called? Okay. Uh, <laughs> Ray admitting to piracy on the record. <laughs> well, no, it was a friend that let me borrow. <laughs> and this was many years ago. I think it was over 10 or 20 years ago. Or uh, 10 or 20 years ago. ago. He's trying to establish that the statute of limitations has passed. <laughs> he was... He was he about is. six months old. Raising <laughs> the statute of limitations. I was a hardcore gamer as a toddler. So yeah, that's one of the things that uh, one of the ways that companies get around uh, DRM. <clears throat> There's other ways that they've done it for for video games. For example, they can uh, create make the games even single player games, and I think SimCity is a great example of this. Um, they can make single player games online, although this tends to really outrage the community in general because why do I need to be online if I'm just playing by myself? And it also hurts people abroad who may not have access, or even in this country, who may not have access to a steady internet. Because you're playing your game, you're building your city, and then, oh, you're, the internet went down. Well, there goes all your progress. Good luck. You know, they, there's a lot of ways that companies do this. Yes, I think that's an example of tech. Maybe the use of tech outpacing the ability of people to accept it. So being online all the time is not something that can be counted upon. Uh, my spotty internet connection in Maine means that that copy of SimCity that I had was garbage until they released a offline version of it, which took eight months of patching oh no, for you, whatever you, you reason. You actually paid for it. I'm so sorry. I, it was a mistake. <laughs> it was, uh, but it was the SimCity re reboot, so I was very excited. Uh, one form of DRM that I think is really interesting that I've seen sort of a circle happen with is in iTunes. Uh, when iTunes was first selling digital music, it was it had DRM on it. I forget the actual proprietary extension that all yeah, it was like iTunes MP4A or something like that. It was yeah. some some type of file that could only be used in your authenticated iTunes account, and if you had a couple computers authenticating across the computers and you, everything, you could have was, up to five computers, I believe. It was nightmarish, <laughs> essentially, and then. Sites like SoundCloud or Bandcamp were able to sell MP3s from independent artists where you got an MP3 and suddenly the convenience of MP3s was so obvious that for me, buying from iTunes was no longer an option. I found other ways to get the music I wanted. However, I don't know how long it took, but then iTunes started selling MP3s without DRM and that's when its popularity began to skyrocket. I think it was skyrocketing the entire time, but for someone like me, it brought me back. Then the final twist on this is just something that I've only realized this past week as an Apple Music subscriber is they gave me all this music that I could access anytime, anywhere. But now with Apple Music, which I am using, things can be delisted from Apple Music, meaning it is gone forever. So an album I bought on iTunes in 2009 is now gone because that person no longer has it available via Apple Music, hmm. which is sort of like a new bizarre way to trick people into sort of a DRM relationship, I think. It's it, I think it's it's interesting with these services because you don't own things anymore. That's weird because when normally you'd buy a CD, you'd, you'd, no one could take that away from you. Well, right I mean, except now. for thieves. <laughs> yes. It's like you're leasing this Real music pirates. from that yeah. company for a certain period of time, which and is what SoundCloud premium is. Because you're clicking on buy now. The, the button says buy now. That's not what you're really Well, getting. if you read the terms of service, which no one does, that's you're not really buying the song or the game really good, for, like, truly. It's a good topic for another podcast, terms of service. Go yeah, ahead, well, I mean, I feel that, that I think it would get mired in legalese, but we can discuss that later. Um, the, the main thing with the way that these services currently provide you with uh, the product 
is that really you're only renting it in a way. You buy, you buy the right to have it, but they, they always retain the right to refuse you it. If you break the terms of service, a lot of these product, these companies will just cut off your access to them. For example, I know Steam is probably, uh, Valve's team is a huge DRM service in a, in a way because you need to have access to Steam to be able to access these games. And although some of these games can be, um, Steam for listeners who may not be aware is uh, the game distribution platform on on the computer on PC um, and Mac, and basically it's the largest game distribution plat- platform in existence currently. And what they do is they offer uh, developers the option to have you know easy DRM because you need to be logged into Steam to use Steam to to a degree. Um, they also offer modding tools, support. They they have a lot of things going for them, and that's one of the reasons why they're so big. But Steam always re- re- retains the right to reject you access to Steam and thus reject you access to your entire games library. There are people out there who have sunk thousands of dollars into buying games. And at any point, if, for example, Steam servers go down, if, they, if for example, the company just closes down, they could lose access to those games. If, unless they decide to make them you know, open for the public. They, if the... Company decides that you've broken the terms of service. You're you've violated them in some form. You could get banned, and thus now you might be you know, the games might not be accessible to you anymore. It's That's, interesting because you're describing lock-in as almost an an investment profile. You know, uh, it's a high risk investment and it's a long term investment almost to to sink a thousand dollars into something and to but to not know in five years what will happen to that. But it's not a profitless investment. I mean, I don't mean profit in terms of. You're enjoying I mean, the value content, right? Yeah. So, yeah. You, so you're gaining, you're you're experiencing value throughout. It's like you're getting these dividends. You know, <laughs> you're taking dividends, but you might not get that. You might not get that lasting value at the very end to own that content. So, is it worth the investment for the enjoyment you're getting? And I'm thinking of an example like Adobe Creative Cloud, where they switch their payment model to the subscription model, and so you're paying to use Adobe products as time goes by and then you just don't have that software anymore once you stop paying but you still hold on to the things you created with it and so this is technology i think keeping pace with or drm's application of technology keeping pace with what people can handle because the adobe creative cloud is a genius move because i think adobe products were the most pirated pieces of software right worldwide for years and years I'm not sure now, but I assume with Creative Cloud that has to have been reduced pretty substantially. And something like Steam, people can use that now, but in 1998, a service like Steam would have been incredibly difficult to get people to use. Mm -hmm. So it's this technology can be used correctly with DRM if it's used in a way where people can can understand why it's there, I, I would say. So it's not like SimCity being online all the time. That's, this is ridiculous. I bought this. I want to have it whenever I want it. But something like Steam, oh, this is a whole ecosystem of games where we have all these tools built in, so it's worth it to me to accept this restriction. And that seems like a fantastic, that's a great point. I think, like, I think that's a fantastic spot to stop for now. We're going to go on a short commercial break, and we'll be right back. So come back with us, dear listener, in just a few minutes. Hey, Luis. What's up, Ray? My bike tire just got stolen yesterday. Are you kidding me? Yeah. Oh, man. Well, do you have tire tire tracker? The what? The tire track tracker. What's what? The tire track tracker? Yes, the tire track tracker. What's the tire track tracker? It's a product that allows you to tra- track your tires. 
What do you mean I can go and find out where my tire is and who stole it and then I can get it back from them and put it back on my bike because it's my tire? That's why I said. How does it work? Well, first of all, you buy the tire tire tracker and then you install it on your bike uh-huh. and then you can track your trackers. It works by using proprietary tracker technology yeah. that um, uses IoT and blockchain to a tire tracker. So it uses the, the sensors and the, the, the Wi-Fi in the, the, the neighborhood? Yes, and uh, and it also uses uh, yeah, and yeah. It, it's 4G. Exactly. Welcome back to PFL Podcast. We had a great guest, Andrew, with us. During the commercial, we had a bit of a, an argument about piracy and how it affects the new generation, how they view content. So, Luis and Ray, what are you taking yeah. out right now? Right, so I was thinking about how, you know, since it's so much easier to access content using streaming tools and, um, you know, Netflix and all these different iTunes platforms, piracy is less of a problem, I think, I would disagree now with compared you. to 15 years ago. I would disagree with you in a sense. I think that the, the expectation about content has changed inherently. Expectation from who? From people in general. New generations expect content to always be available. And if it is not, they will do what is necessary to available get Available for free or for, for uh, a Just price. easily. Easily available. They've grown up having Netflix in their homes. They've grown up with... I mean, I know that I, at this point I've had content just freely available to me. Not necessarily well, it was, free, but... It was always easier to buy the DVD versus pirating the the, the Is video. it? Yeah, it was. You go to the store, you pay 15 to 20 bucks for a DVD, you get the movie. If you wanted to pirate it, you had to find the right IRC channel, you had to find the right uh, place. I know with torrenting, it became much easier. But, but you're there's forgetting. also risks of downloading uh, malware and viruses, so it's not necessarily easier to do piracy. But you're forgetting that the people who have to go buy those discs are generally people who have money, Right. Yeah, children don't tend to have a lot of money on their on hand, with some exceptions. So generally, for children, they're going off of their parents' Netflix accounts. They're going off of what their friends are able to give them. So at least in my opinion, I, I expect that that might have a consequence in that children now have an expectation that if it's not available to them easily, then they will pirate it. Also, I don't think that money is the only dimension. And this goes back to something you said, Luis, at the beginning of the podcast about FOMO, the fear of missing out. The accessibility was different in my childhood than it is in some a young person today. I think of if I missed a TV show because I wasn't at home and it wasn't airing, it was airing at a specific time, I just missed it. And maybe I could have somebody tape it for me, I watch a rerun, whatever. But now, if they want to get content, they can get it. And so they will search it out. So of those methods is the most accessible to someone who's young. So they think about money, but they think about accessibility. Yeah, and if you go online, there's it's very easy to just search. Insert name of show, free, streaming, right? And any child can do that. I mean, they'll get viruses because they may not know how to properly search for things right. that are illegal. But, and, and again, dear listener, we're not, we're not uh, advising that anyone go out and uh, commit piracy. Uh, PFL podcast does not uh, condone piracy or illegal activities. Children have an easy access to it because they are they've grown up with the internet. They've grown up with just looking things up. Do you think the largest per- largest portion of perpetrators that commit piracy are are children? 
Because I disagree with that. I don't. No, think I don't. Children. I don't. I, I don't think that. I think that the access to information now, the way that culture has developed, in part thanks to, due to easy accessibility to content and the constant, always on nature of content. Because there's always something to watch now. When I'm online, for example, and I, I get like a little bit of panic if there's not something that I can watch. If I've watched everything that I find interesting on Netflix, it's a bit of a panic moment for me at this point. Because yeah. I feel like, well, what else am I going to do? Well, I would feel like, wow, I wasted a lot of time watching all of this content. True. I mean, and that's definitely part of it. But I think that like if I'm having that thought, even if it's just like an instinctual reaction and I then rationalize and think, well, I can do a million other things. But – Someone who is younger may have a far more visceral, I need to find this now. And all they have to do is really just look for it. It's a lot easier now than, yes, there's a lot of things that have gone offline. There's been crackdowns on a lot of sites and that all that stuff has happened. And that makes it a little bit more difficult to find, identify pirate, pirated content. But it's still out there and it's still relatively easy to get. And it's still easier than, for example, having your parents sign up for another service. I disagree. Actually, I think it's easier... For them to sign up for a service. The children? Not the children. So when you say children, what specific age? Are you talking like 12 I'm talking like, like teenagers. 17? I'm talking like 12 to 17. I'm talking children and teenagers. They yeah, don't they, have they, access. Minors. You're talking about minors. Yeah, I'm talking about minors. People who may not have access to the family wallet and can't just sign up for Amazon Prime or whatever other service that has the accessibility or Hulu or whatever. They may not have access to these games. Or... They have the access that their parents decide for the family. Exactly. So families have access, which you see in kind of Netflix with these user profiles, or you see Amazon Prime being kind of used for all the family's needs for shipping, but also Amazon Prime Music yeah. or whatever. So you think in a way children are defying their parents' um, denial of access to Hulu and Netflix by committing piracy and... Wow, I didn't I didn't think about that issue actually. That's an interesting. Well, I also point. think of of college students and grad students, and maybe that's because we're in this kind of context now. But the more expedient type of content, especially if you don't want, are not going to consume it a hundred percent like you would a TV show. So I think of readings in class where you like you need access to the readings, but you feel like you don't want to pay maybe a hundred percent. So you have these students who seek out free methods, or they copy each other's you know, textbooks or something. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure there's, there's we, all, we think of movies and music as the focus of piracy, but it really happens with academic materials and books. It also happens with software. I mean, how many people have had, they've wanted to do a project and they don't have access to the software because it's, maybe it's hundreds of dollars. And so then they just get a pirated version of it, do their project and they move on. Well, that makes me think about uh, scientific articles and journals where there's a, movement towards creating an open source platform for all these um, articles because there is a societal benefit to to having this information public public and uh, you know it's really strange that if you want to learn the latest about stem cell technology you'll have to pay you know 300 bucks or something for an article that's brand new or whatever it is 150 10 even there's still that barrier um, where but there are a lot of academics that put their research on ResearchGate or Mendeley, these social networks that are for academics to post their journal articles openly and publicly so people can read them. I guess you know what's also fair is most of the high-end researchers are already getting, you know, their institution pays for subscriptions anyway. So I guess there's a built-in model that yeah. perpetuates or tries to um, increase the quality at the same time. Uh, increasing the quantity. 
But I, I think the question here is one of how have our expectations been shaped by our access to the, our easy access to content? And I think that's one of the things because now we have like this expectation that maybe that research should be easily available. Right. Whereas traditionally that may not have been the way we saw things because that's not how we had access to things. We didn't feel entitled to entertainment. We didn't feel entitled to programs, to games. But I feel like now, and I hate using the, the term entitlement because that's that has a lot of connotations to it, political connotations that I don't want to get into. But but I think you're right. But I think that like we feel like we deserve all of these things easily, and to a degree, I mean that's what companies are trying to do because that's the best way to get us to pay for services and especially not pirate. But this is the thing that's changed in society, and it's going to be interesting seeing how it changes moving forwards as we explore an interesting future that we have ahead of us. I think the internet in its architecture has caused this mindset because the internet in and of itself has placed information in a public forum that's easily accessible. And so we've moved toward a culture of accessibility and openness. So then when we set up these gates, these paywalls or some monetization methods to account for that, it is difficult not to uh, cause conflict with that mindset. Yeah, especially when you're talking about business models that run against things like, you know, the YouTube model of we just you just have to watch an advertisement for 30 seconds and you have access to all this content, a gigantic library with more man hours of video than the entire history of humanity, basically, if you put it together. Um, and that's just the way that things are now. We have grown up, I mean, we have a whole generation growing up with this as the way the world is and no context of anything else. At least we've grown up with something else that we can kind of like judge our current situation based off of. Right, we had to actually use audio tapes to record radio when we wanted yeah. a song that you know was yeah. not And similarly, otherwise. older generations didn't even have that. So yeah. it's going to be that's I that's think true. where the where the very fascinating thing is going to be what society is going to look like 40 years from now when or those even people 10 years. Yeah, sure. When the children who grew up at the start of the internet, uh, well, not the start, but like the big proliferation of the internet, because we children who grew up with the internet already, in yeah, completely yeah, in with place. Netflix, children who grew up with Netflix, yeah. for example, how those children are going to act and how they're going to shape society when we are entering our fifties. It'll be you know? a very transparent world, I think. It already is a transparent world. You think I mean, of any deed you do is very difficult to erase from the internet. How do you? remove <laughs> content from from ever being in existence. And that is a topic that I think would be fascinating to explore because there is that right to forget that has been argued by right. uh, by some countries that have tried to legislate that. Sure. And I think that on that note, we are going to end this week's episode of Positive Feedback Loop. Tune in next week as we will continue discussing interesting topics with interesting people, namely the ones here, and maybe <laughs> some more. Who knows? So stay, stay positive and stay, stay crazy. crazy.